When we uh, began our time this morning, our worship leader, Brian, welcomed us by saying good morning. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken a a foreign language class before, but usually in our first level of any foreign language that we take in school, that's one of the first phrases that we learn, right? Good morning. Uh, good afternoon, good night. I'm, I'm not all, altogether sure why um, we're, we always learn these things because um, I, I guess people in the old days used to say those a lot more than they do now. Uh, but that's usually one of the first things that people say. When you wake up in the morning, you say to one another, good morning. When you go to bed at night, you say good, uh, good night. Uh, you see someone during the day, and then as you're parting ways, a lot of times you say to them, have a good day. Right? Why is that? I think it, deep in our hearts, we're, it's, it's an expression of our wish for them. And what we desire for ourselves is what we also wish for another person. That's just common courtesy, that we wish to have good days for ourselves. We wish to have good nights. And when you take all of these things together, you put your good days, you put your good nights, you put your good mornings all together, what do you end up with? Hopefully, the hope is that we end up with a good life. And so as we wish one another these good days and these good mornings, towards that end that we would have a good life, the question then becomes, what is a good life? What does it mean to have a good life? What does it mean to live a good life? When it all all comes down to it, what is the good life? I know that that's something uh, that has been asked ever since um, the philosophers, Aristotle, initially coined this phrase, the good life, as a way of talking about the life that we've always wanted to live. And so we think about that. What would you consider to be the good life? I uh, would venture to say that um, based on who you are, you might have a different estimation of what the good life is. But I asked some of our people here at Harvest this morning what they thought the good life was. And let me tell you what some of their answers were. Here's what some people said the good life is. One said, living in the center. This is a, a very godly response. Living in the center of God's will with purpose, joy, hope, and loving my family, my church, and my people. That's the good life to this one person. Another one said, simply put, less stuff, more God. And then like five minutes later, he texted me and then he said, oh, wait. Also, whenever the Lakers lose, that's a good thing. (laughs) Somebody else said, for my parents to get me my own car or to study abroad or to end world hunger. That's a good life for this person. Another one said, a beach house, (laughs) waves, no worries, no pain, magic winning, all the meat I want, pork belly all day. (laughs) And then another one, uh, a rising college student said, getting a stable job, a stable and well-paying job right out of college. What is a good life to you? I think all of us have different ideas and different uh, evaluations of what the good life is and what the good life, uh, what, what ideas these co- uh, come to mind when we think about the good life. But today I want to talk about what the, bi- what, maybe not so much about what the good life is as much as how we can have the good life according to the word of God. So if you have your Bible, we're going to continue in our study of First Peter. We're going to look at chapter 3. 
And we're just going to read verses 8 through 12. I'll frame it in context, and then we're going to get going and talk about how we can have uh, live the good life. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses um, 8 through 12 here. <clears throat> I don't know if it comes up. Okay, it does come up on the screen. Um, okay, cool. Um, this is God's word. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. All right, so how do we take um, this bunch of disjointed, seemingly disjointed propositions, commands, principles, and bring them together? Here's, here's where I want to go. Uh, if you look in your if you look in your Bible, I'm not sure if it came out this way on the screen. You look at verses 10 and 11. It has them um, not. It, it's not in paragraph form, but it's in poetic form. Right? It's basically uh, the biblical writer's way of saying that he's quoting from the Psalms here. So what we have here in verses 10 and 11 is Peter, who was familiar with the Old Testament, quoting Psalm 34. Why did he quote Psalm 34? Because Psalm 34 was written by David, the king, when he was in a situation very similar to the people who are reading Peter's letter here. The situation that Peter's quoting in verses 10 and 11 were parallel to a situation that was uh, facing, confronting David when he wrote Psalm 34. He was on the run. He was being persecuted. He was in danger. He was in trouble. He feared for his life. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but Saul, the king before him, is chasing after David, wants to kill him. So David crosses over into enemy territory, in the Philistine territory. The king captures him, and so David realizes that he's about to die. And so what does he do? He starts praying out to God, and then he acts like a crazy man. He starts drew, uh, foaming at the mouth. The king of, Phil, of the Philistines says, this guy's crazy. He's psychotic. He's insane. And they let him go, and David is released. Life is spared, and then he writes Psalm 34 as a way of thanking God for it. In a similar way, the readers in Peter's uh, time, the Christians in Asia Minor, were facing intense persecution, were facing intense suffering. They were going through all kinds of hardship. Every day they felt like they were living on the edge of death. And so in order to minister to them, Peter is writing, quoting Psalm 34 to give the same advice that David gave to himself that Peter will then give to his readers and through them that he's giving to us. Okay, so in times of hardship, in times of suffering, in times of trouble, how can we live the good life? If you look in verse 10, it says, forever who would, who, uh, would love life and see good days. Literally, here's what he's saying. This phrase, whoever would love life, it means love means to strongly desire. It means to have a deep, all-encompassing, passionate desire for something. And when he talks about life, he's not just talking, the, the Greek word that he uses is not just a word for life and death, but he's talking about the fullness of life, the life that it was as it was meant to be lived, 
the fullness of life, the overflowing, teeming, just bountiful, abundant life that we were created to live. So he says, if you strongly desire that kind of a life, even in the midst of suffering, then listen to what I'm telling you. And then he goes on and he says, and see good days. Hey, good days doesn't just mean, okay, have a good day. And then anything that's not bad is a good day. But when he talks about good days, he's talking about this idea of having joy and purpose. Every day filled with meaning. Every day filled with significance. Every day filled with waking up knowing that you're living in the purpose for which God has called you to. And so verses 10 and 11 become a hinge upon which we see these, uh, this passage here. I think, do you want to live that kind of a life? Right? As we often hear, every person dies, but not every person really lives. Think, do you really want to live, if you strongly desire to live life, even in the midst of a world that is filled with suffering and persecution and challenges and obstacles to the life of Jesus Christ in you, then this passage today speaks into your situation. Okay, so three things at least that I just kind of want to just wrap up together and then pull out. Here's the first thing. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, here's how we can live the good life. One, use suffering to experience deeper fellowship with believers. Okay, this is huge. Imagine a group of people. Okay, imagine we're the people of Asia Minor, Christians in Asia Minor, and we're all being persecuted for our faith. You've got one group in the corner, right? And they're just being ridiculed, right? Their lives are at stake. Their family members are being pulled out of their homes. Okay, that's one group. You've got another group of people over here. Every time you go to work, right, you get um, half the wages that other people get just because you're a Christian. Because you do things with integrity. You don't cut corners. You don't do things the way your boss wants you to. Your wages get cut in half. Right? There's that one group that's suffering. Another group of people, you go to school, whatever, wherever you go, and um, you always get the, the raw end of the deal. You always get the, the, the short end of the stick because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. In the midst of a group like this, say this is who we are. Okay? We're suffering. We're being persecuted simply because we hold on to faith in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Then the temptation would be to not do the very things that is written about in verses 8 and 9. See, he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. If you're in this situation where you're suffering, you're feeling the intense weight of hardship placed on you by another person simply because you're following Jesus Christ. The temptation in our hearts would be to not give ourselves to other people. See, here's what suffering does. It will, our experience of suffering will do one of two things. Very simply put, it will either unite us together or it will divide us as a community. And the temptation that we face is that Knowing that I'm going through hardship, knowing that my life is being challenged, that my life is being threatened, that there's all kinds of attacks on my life, the temptation would be not to live in harmony with with one another. The temptation is to, instead of coming together and focusing on a common goal, it would be to separate because we're looking at all of the, the, the challenges afflicting our own lives. Instead of coming together in harmony, The temptation is to build dividing walls to protect ourselves. But he's saying live in harmony with one another. Second thing he says, be sympathetic. We're just going to go through this real quick. Be sympathetic. That means literally what it means. As you experience suffering, 
it means to suffer with another person. This idea of sympathy means that as you go through this suffering, that you feel their hurt in your heart. That's what sympathy means. As you see Eric going through a challenge, you, go through, you see him uh, struggling through what it means to live out his, his faith in a secular environment. As you look at him and you see his heartache, sympathy, when it says to be sympathetic, it says you look at him and you feel his, heart, his hurt within our own heart. Isn't it easy for us when we're going through our own trouble and our own difficulty to not want to feel the pains of other people? It's to withdraw from them and to say, you know what, I should, I, should, I should experience sympathy. You should give me sympathy, but I don't want to give sympathy to another person. Here's an interesting way one, one writer put it. It says, when you think about in the Old Testament, Moses and Aaron, these two brothers, right, greatly used by God. Moses, far more famous than Aaron, probably. But even though he was a more popular and more famous of the two brothers, right, used by God to do great things, God never called him to the office of a high priest. Why? It's interesting that one writer, he says, Moses grew up potentially as the heir to the prince of Egypt. So he never felt the sting of slavery. He never felt the lashes of a taskmaster upon his back. He never felt the scorching sun, the scorching heat that the lives of the slaves of the Israelites did. But Aaron did because he was one of them. And then here's what he goes on to say. He says, you can give pity from above, but you can only experience sympathy and give sympathy from beside another person. If in our suffering, we feel like these other people who are suffering are below us and we're never going to be able to sympathize with them. We'll be able to give pity to them but we'll never be able to feel their hurt in our heart. And so Peter says, as you go through suffering, other people are as well. Be sympathetic. And then he goes on and he says, love as brothers. He says, when you look at one another's suffering, he's saying that person is not simply an acquaintance. They're not a distant relative. They're not a fourth or fifth cousin. See them as your brother, right? as someone from the same womb as you. And treat them in that way. And he says, be compassionate. And compassion means to, it means to, again, similar to, to sympathy, it means to suffer with another person. Right? To walk alongside of them in their shoes. Be compassionate. And then it says, and, and be humble. You cannot think of yourself as better than them. See, in this context, Peter's saying, we're all going through these moments of suffering. We're all going through hardship. The temptation is to divide and to withdraw from the community, but he's saying the opposite thing. The temptation for us is to not live in harmony, to not sympathize, to not love his brothers, to not be compassionate, to not be humble. But he tells us that we ought to, and we think about this, what happens if we were to do that? If we were to move towards one another in harmony, to be sympathetic, to love, to be compassionate, to be humble. Have you ever experienced anything like this before? Where when you are suffering, when you are going through a challenging time, when you're being persecuted for your faith, instead of withdrawing from the community, you came together with other people and you began to experience this. 
you begin to experience people walking in and feeling your hurt within themselves and drawing into your heart. Then to see people loving you, not simply as a friend, not simply as an acquaintance, but loving you as someone born from the same womb, as a brother, as a sister. They begin to, to, to have compassion on you, and in humility, they begin to serve you and to love you and to care for you in your place of need. You see, it's, it's in times where we feel like, I can't, I can't go on any further. This is where we need the community more than ever before. It's in these places where we feel like the weight of pressure and the weight of struggle and the weight of suffering is so deep on us and so heavy in our hearts that this is, this is a time when we need one another more than we ever have before. And so Peter is calling us to live in this kind of a community. Why? Because, here, because suffering and our experience of suffering will either unite us together or it will divide us as a community. And when you think about this, uh, one of, the, one of the, the things I think about... A couple years back, and I, I, didn't, um, I didn't mention this to, to Josh, but a couple years back, I remember um, Josh Shin coming and, and sharing his testimony of um, just what, what God was doing in his life. And um, I, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what his testimony was, especially this part of it. Uh, and I, I feel like I say this because it's up online and you can listen to it anyways. But Josh talks about how uh, growing up as a, as a pastor's kid in, in, in California, he was involved in all kinds of um, maybe what, what some people might consider the good life, right? Caught up in a lot of worldly things, involved in a lot of in and out of different gangs and in and out of different churches. Not in and out of gangs, but involved in, in that kind of a lifestyle and as a result being in and out of different churches. And as, he, as he's sharing his testimony, he talks about um, the one thing that him and his, his, his group wanted more than anything was just someone to believe in them. Someone to care for them, someone to invest into them, someone to show them the hope of Christ. And they would find one, and then they ended up not working out. And he talks about this time when, when they were 17 years old, I think seniors in high school. He said at that moment, they went to a, a church retreat, and they experienced and encountered a God for one of the first times in his life, and God just felt real to them. And that uh, day after the retreat ended, um, some of his friends were hanging out, and one of the buddies that he was close to, um, ended a, a gun ended up going off, and his his friend was 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 killed, shot in in, in his head, and, and he passed away in that moment. And and as Josh was telling this story, he said this group just um, began going into their different corners, that even within the church, the church just started um, pointing fingers, church um, fell apart. Everyone just started going their own different ways, started blaming one another. Uh, some people even saying he deserved, to, that, he deserved that to happen to him. And, and, and Josh said, as he was sharing his testimony, he said, you know, what is it? Um, you know, what kind of a picture of the church is that? That in their moment when they need one another the most, they end up scattering from one another. And he said for 20 years of his life, that was the lasting image and his lasting impression of the church. About three years ago, um, Josh and his family moved here. And a couple years ago, as he's sharing his testimony, it was all um, in line with uh, what God was doing in, in his life. But it was a, a couple months after um, our brother Tico had passed away on the mission field. And as Josh was sharing his testimony, he said at that moment, right, 20 years after um, his that other experience with, with church, he said he saw people of, of of faith, people of God coming together 
in a way that he'd never seen before. Saw people praying and getting together and crying together. Saw prayers being lifted up not only from within our church, but from all over the world. And he said, in that moment, I saw the power and the hope that the church could give in a way that I've never seen before. And said, I wish that we had seen that 20 years ago when my friend had passed away. See, when we go through suffering, we go through hardship, we'll either come together and unite as a community and experience deeper fellowship with one another, or we will divide and separate. It's in those moments where we feel like, I can't go on any further. In those moments where we feel like the weight of suffering and the weight of our burden is so heavy on us that we need the fellowship of believers more than we ever have in our lives. Right, this isn't just rhetoric, y'all. It's not just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you need to go in and, and start coming out to house church. You need to get to. This is real life. You can't read the Bible. You can't read any uh, book of the Bible without hearing this common theme that it's our vertical relationship with God, but we need each other. We cannot do life apart from each other. And it's like, we hear this all the time. We hear testimonies. I preach about this all the time. But at a certain point, it's like we live, but it's like the, it's like the person who's sick and, and, and dying, but they refuse to, to go to the person that can help them. Like the person whose teeth are all rotting and falling apart, but they refuse to go to the dentist. The person who's, whatever their, their afflictions are, but they don't want to let anyone check them out. Right? This, is, this is us all the time. It's like we know what we need to do, but we don't press into that. It says when, you're go, when you experience suffering, here's how you live the good life because suffering happens. It's going to happen. It is happening in our lives. But you could still live the good life in the midst of that by using that suffering as a way to deepen our experience of fellowship with the believers, with the followers of Christ. This is the first thing that he says in order to experience a good life. The second thing, Verse 9 is going to tell us, the second thing, rehearse the gospel by treating others better than they treat you. Rehearse the gospel by treating others better than they treat you. Verse 9, it says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. So in general, there are, there are about three ways that we relate one person to another. If someone treats you well, right, someone gives you good stuff, does good things to you, to treat them, return that with evil would be demonic. Right? This is what someone said, would be demonic. And you give someone good things. We're not really, you're really nice to a person, and they keep on responding back to you with evil. That's, that's devilish stuff. If someone, if someone gives you good and you respond with good, that's normal, right? That's normal life. Everyone, everyone ought to do that. Someone gives you, treats you evilly, then you would give them evil back. That's normal also. But when someone treats you with evil, but you treat them with good, that's divine. In fact, isn't that what God has done for us? When we treated him with evil and with anger and with violence and with rebellion... Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, while we were his enemies, he reconciled us to God. 
that's why to, to do this, it's not just like, oh, this is like uh, human nature. If I try harder, I can do this. In a sense, yeah. But at the end of the day, and, and I'll get to this in a second, when we return, um, when someone gives us evil and we give them good back, right, this is a work of God and it demonstrates the gospel. Um, there's, we're going to, I just want to kind of unpack a, a, about three big theological terms that we hear a lot. <clears throat> Actually, not big words, but words that we hear in church. That I want to explain um, this. What, here's how one child explained it. Very smart kid. Hey, you're driving. Uh, this is always the analogy is we're always getting caught speeding. So we're driving 80 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. Okay, the cop pulls us over. Justice would be that the cop writes us a ticket, right? He was going 80 in a 30 mile an hour zone. So you get a ticket. That's justice. Mercy in that situation would be the cop comes, walks over to us, says, let me see your license registration. says, I'm going to let you go. Right? That's mercy. Grace, according to this little kid, is a cop walks up to us, doesn't give us a ticket, but he goes back to his car, gets out his donuts, and gives them to you so that you can go on and have a good day. Hey, justice then. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is what when we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is when we get what we do not deserve. Let me say that again. This is huge. Okay, justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. Listen, anyone can give justice. Okay, anyone can give justice. Someone does you wrong, you can do wrong to them. Anybody can do that. And if you get slapped in your face, you slap them back. That's justice. You could do that unless you're really scared. So let's do it different. Someone steals your chicken McNuggets, then you could steal their chicken McNuggets back from them. Right? That's justice. You give them what they deserve. Mercy would be when someone hits you across the face, you don't hit them back. When someone talks bad about you, you don't talk bad about them back. That's mercy. Now, look, every person can give justice and every person can give mercy as long as you try hard enough. As long as you try hard enough and you, what will end up happening if you don't give that person uh, some, what they deserve back, they treat you with evil and you don't give them evil back, then you'll, treat, you'll probably beat yourself up and go into depression and have all kinds of mental issues. But you could give mercy just as a normal person. Anyone can do that as long as you try really hard. But to do grace and to treat them better than you deserve to be treated, than they deserve to be treated, to return evil with good. Listen, you can do this for a short period of time, but to do this over and over and over and over for the long haul, you can't do this without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could try all you want, but when push comes to shove, in that moment of deepest, of highest, heaviest pressure, you're, you're going to lash out, and you're going to give them what they deserve. And you're not going to be able to treat them with grace unless you have received that in an infinite measure. Here's what he's saying. How do you live the good life in the midst of a world that's suffering, in the midst of the suffering that you're going through? In addition to that, that first thing about experiencing fellowship, you rehearse the gospel 
by treating others better than the way they treat you. And as you think, as you do that, you think about the gospel, you think about, isn't this the way that God has treated me in Christ Jesus? Isn't this what he has done for me? And as we do this, we find in ourselves a strength that we did not have, a strength that the world doesn't have, that we can give them far greater than they've given to us. Karen Jobes, she's a, a professor at Westmont College, used to uh, teach at Regent College in, in Vancouver. But she gives us this very simple story that one of her students told her in class as it relates to repaying evil with good. Talked about a time when there's this Christian soldier, and every night he would read his Bible and he would pray. And others in, in his station would just mock him, and they would ridicule him. They would make fun of him. Not everybody, but there was a, a good group of people that would do that. And they would um, taunt him for being a Christian, They would make fun of him. They would yell at him. They would do mean things to him. And one time as he was reading the Bible, one of the soldiers from across the aisle took his muddy boot and he threw it across his face. This guy responded. He said later he took that boot and he washed it and he polished it. That when that guy woke up the next morning, his boots were completely cleaned and lined up in front of his bed for morning inspection. And as Karen Jones was telling this, she said, some of these people saw that and a couple people within their station began to question, began to inquire. And these soldiers, through the witness of this man, gave their lives to Christ and following him as well. They said, there's got to be something. What is it that causes someone to repay that kind of evil with that kind of a good so that he doesn't get in trouble? Of all of the things that he could have done, he could have left the shoe there. He could have Put, put the shoe back where it belonged. He didn't have to clean it up and make it all nice, but in doing so, he showed forth the gospel to people who needed not only to see it, uh, to, to hear it, but to see it lived out. And we can live a good life in the midst of suffering as we continue to rehearse the gospel and play this out through our actions by treating others better than the way they treat us. The last thing then, the last thing that we see, verses 10 and 11. Um, this doesn't really fit the, uh, fit the outline very well, but God always gives his best when we pray. So maybe it should say, know that God always gives his best when we pray. Verses 10 and 11 is a rehashing of the kind of ethics that he's calling us to in verses 8 and 9. Whoever would love life and see good days and keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech, He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Basically, he's summing up what was just said. Verse 12, here's the motivation. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, most of the time when we think about this idea that God is always watching us, we use that as a motivation for us to live a godly life. Hey, you know what? Um, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Little hands, what you do. Because God's looking down on us. And so we use this as motivation for which we ought to say, you know what? If we don't do this, then God's going to be upset with us. But here it says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. When it talks about the eyes of the Lord in the Old Testament, which is what he's quoting here, whenever it talks about the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, it's because he's giving special care and special attention attention to the objects of his special desire. So here he's saying the eyes of the Lord are on us, not as a motivation to live a proper life, but as a reminder of God's faithful love over us. 
Right? So what, what does that mean? Last week on our Manny Monday, our old, older daughter is named Manny. And so um, we have Manny Monday. It's basically our, our day for our family to spend together. And so we went um, with one of Manny's friends, Emmeline, and we're hanging out at, at Monkey Joe's. Uh, Monkey Joe's is, um, I, I've mentioned it before, but it's kind of this like playground, indoor playground with lots of bounce houses and things like that. So it's a lot of fun to, to go there, and adults can go in to help their children um, to climb and stuff. So it's fun for people of all ages. So um, as kids were running around there, it was just, it's just really exciting for me as it, it got tiring at points. And so we'd sit down on the benches and we just watch the kids run around, not just our kids, but other children as they run. And just, it just uh, brings delight to see these little children running and having such a great time and bouncing on these things and stuff like that. And even though I'm watching all of these other kids, I would be silly not to have a special attention for my own daughter, Manny. And so the joy in my heart is greater when I see her running around and see her laughing and see her smiling. And she wants to go into the bounce house. And so um, she says, Daddy, can you help me in the bounce house? So I, I walk in the bounce house and we're all jumping around. And in order to go down the slide, you have to go up the ladder. And there's this one ladder that, that Manny was really scared of. And so she, as she was climbing up the ladder, um, every couple seconds, she's like, Daddy, I'm scared. And so I'm, my, I'm like touching her back. I'm like, Manny, I'm right here. I'm right here. And she would take another step up and she'd say, Daddy, I'm scared. I'd say, Manny, Daddy's right here. I'm right here and I'm holding you. And then she would, when she got up to the top, this sense of just delight and excitement as she got to the top. But everything about this time is I'm running around, I'm watching people playing. Every part of, every part of me is inclined to hear. The moment she says, Daddy, I got there as soon as she says my name. This is all I'm listening for is for her to call out to me. And as soon as she does, I'm there. And as soon as she does, she realizes I've never been far away from her. When he talks about this idea that the eyes of the Lord are on us and his ears are attentive to their prayer, that's what he's saying. See, a lot of times we get scared and we wonder where our father is only to realize that his hand is on our back. And he waits for us to call out to him, Daddy. His ear is attentive to our cries, and he's right there waiting for us. And some of you might be saying, if he's really, okay, he's attentive, that's great. He cares for me, that's great, but why is my life so jacked up then? If he really is attentive to my prayer, then why aren't my prayers being answered? And I prayed for this thing in my life to happen, it didn't happen. I prayed for that person in my life. I prayed for this uh, open door, and, and God closed it. I prayed to, to go to this City, I prayed to go to this country, but, but none, none of these things are falling. In a, if God's really attentive to my cry, then why isn't he answering my prayers? I think it's a question that we all wrestle with. We all deal with this. It, on <clears throat> Thursday or Friday, I forget which day it was, Olivia and I were going out to uh, visit uh, Aline, Josh and Samina's daughter, um, their newborn. And we were stopping by Starbucks in order to get, um, to get a drink <clears throat> to bring out to them. And we were getting a drink for ourselves. And I'm a, I'm a noob at Starbucks. I don't know anything. And so I don't know, like, the proper way to order all any of these things. And there's, apparently there's an order. You have to tell them what size and how special, all this stuff. And so I, I'm, like, driving through the drive-thru with Olive. And she says, I want a grande iced caramel macchiato with skim milk. I said, okay. So I pull out the drive-thru. And they're like, can I help you? Welcome to Starbucks. I said, I'd like a grande iced caramel macchiato with skim milk. And like a three-second pause. And the lady repeats back to me, 
okay, you'd like an iced triple grande vanilla latte? I'm like, what? I, so I said to Olive, I said, what did she just say? I think she said, do you want an iced grande, triple grande vanilla latte? <clears throat> and I said back to her, I said, no, no, no. I'd like an iced caramel macchiato with skim milk. I don't know how these things make any sense. She said, I see you at the window. I think a lot of times we think that's what God is hearing when we pray. God, I'd really love to go to the University of Florida. And then God sends us, boom, here, there's your college. Like, what the heck? That's not what I asked for. Or, God, I really want to really go to Greece and, and marry a Greek man. That would be my dream come true. And bam, Korean man, what the heck? Right? A lot of times we're like, what, what's going on here? If God's really attentive to my prayers, really attentive to my cries, then what the heck is going on in my life? I used to hear that God always answers our prayers in one of three ways. And you see this like with a stoplight, red light, yellow light, green light. Right? Or no, slow, and go. Right? If your request is wrong, right? if he doesn't want you to have that thing, then he'll say no. He'll give you a red light. That's the end of it. Like, oh, well, that's kind of stinky. If the request is right, but the timing is wrong, right? yeah, I'll give you that Greek man, but maybe five years later when you actually learn some Greek or something like that, I don't know, then he'll say slow. He'll give us a yellow light. And he'll give us what we want, only just realizing that God's delays are not the same thing as God's denial. And he gives us a yellow light. But when the request is right and the timing is right, he gives us a green light and he gives us that which we pray for. I think a lot of times that's how we see it. And that's how we should see it. I think that's proper. I think that's right because there's biblical evidence for all three of these. Sometimes God says no. Right? Sometimes God says slow. Sometimes God says go. But I think if I could simplify it even further, I would say, and I I forgot where I heard this, some brilliant theologian probably, but says God answers our prayers in one of two ways. Either God gives us what we ask for, or he gives us something far better. That's it. I know this is really hard maybe for some of us to really fathom in our hearts. But let me ask you, have you ever experienced an unanswered prayer in your life leading to the biggest open door, something that you never expected would happen in your life? You ever experienced that God's no leads to a better yes? I've said this before, but how many times have y'all prayed to marry somebody only to be married to somebody different and realizing that life would have been really awful had I married that first person that I prayed to God that I would marry? In that moment, we were so upset and we were so bitter that God either gives us what we want or he gives us something far better. I think about, we always have to see this through the lens of Jesus. That when he prayed on the last night of his life, God, my father, if it's possible to remove the cup of wrath from my life, I don't want to drink this if it's possible. If there's another way to do it, would you allow this to happen? And yet yielded to the will of God. God didn't answer that prayer the way Jesus wanted. But he gave something far better. I think about the apostle Paul when he had this thorn in his flesh this major hindrance, encumbrance, suffering in his life. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord that he would take it away. I'm not sure why he didn't pray more, but he says, three times I pleaded, God, take this thorn away from me. 
and his prayer was denied. And presumably for the rest of his life, he lived with this thorn in his flesh, which Paul writes to the church in Corinth in his second letter. He says, this was given to me to keep me humble so that in my weakness, God's power is made perfect. And Paul wanted God to remove this suffering from him. God didn't give that to him. Instead, he gave him his power in its place. And I don't know how many times I've asked for God to do things in my life in order to alleviate the suffering and the weakness in me, only to have that prayer seemingly unanswered. But in that moment, God says, maybe looking back through time, says, I didn't give you what I wanted what you wanted. But imagine this, you got my power instead. And God gives us either what we want, what we ask for. He gives us something far greater. And through both Paul's life and through Jesus' life, even though their prayers went unanswered, it opened up the door to God's best, not only for them, but for the world as well. The glory of God was revealed through these unanswered prayers in a way, in such a way that the gospel could go forth in far greater measure. Hey guys, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of hardship, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of pain, you and I can still live not just an okay life. We can live the good life and have good days all the days of our life. Because his eyes are on us and his ears are attentive to our cries. Let's pray together. As we take a moment to reflect and then to respond on the word of God. I don't know if um, a lot of us are going through hardship and suffering right now, but I know at least one of us is. And even if this message was not for 100 some people, maybe this message was for one. Maybe that one is you. Maybe if you're going through hardship, You're struggling, wrestling, wondering, does God really see me? Does God really care when I'm going through these challenges? Maybe you can open up your heart in a new way to experience a fellowship with others that you've never before experienced as they enter and they move into your pain and you move into theirs. Maybe he needs you to be reminded, want you to be reminded that every intention of the heart of your Father is for your good all the time. Never been a moment where His intention has been ill or evil for you. Every intention of God's heart for you as His child is for your good and He will work all things together for your good. His delays are not the same thing as His denials. There's a purpose for all of these things.
Maybe you're being treated badly now by someone. And God's calling you. Hey, pray to me. Find strength to stand up under it. Rehearse the gospel so that you could treat them better than they treat you. That they might be one to Christ. <clears throat> Let's take a, a minute right now just to pray to the Lord. I don't know where we might be, where we are right now, but let's take a moment just to pray in the quiet of our hearts, committing these situations, committing these people, committing these things, committing our hearts to the Lord in order that he might receive glory and that his purpose might be accomplished in us. Let's pray together for just a minute or so, and then I'll I'll pray on our behalf, and then we'll continue to worship through our offerings and, and our songs. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that for all of us, your grace is sufficient and it's more than enough for us. And so Lord, we pray for all those who struggle, for all those who suffer, for all those who are in moments of hardship now. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would remind them of these truths. Remind them of these things that are true of you and they're true of us. We pray that for those who feel like they're weak and those who feel like they just need strength to make it from here to tomorrow, pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would descend upon them in order that your grace would be more than enough, be more than sufficient for them, that your power would be made perfect in weakness, that your presence would be made known in suffering, that your nearness would be real in hardship, for the glory of God and for the joy of your people and for our witness to the world. Thank you so much for working in our time. Would you allow there to be fruit, lasting fruit, as a result of our look into your word? Would you convict us and challenge us and remind us so that we might live for your glory and for your honor? We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.